This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a, this should be an interesting show today. We've got one of our most frequent guests. I haven't really nailed down the number here. I didn't have time. I was reading another document, but Don Weeks is going to join us. It's been a little while too, and uh, looking forward to chatting with Don from In-Air Environmental up in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, before we get started, though, let's thank our marquee sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go down to L.A., Lower Alabama. They go out to Joe Dobbins, Anniston, Alabama, for being first to identify Ron Tony as the IICRC's first instructor. The IAQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday June 7th, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. In what year was the AIHA founded? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Hey, I also wanted to uh, shout out to Hayward Score, haywardscore.com. They uh, came on board as a uh, marquee sponsor again for this year's Healthy Building Summit, which will be October 16th to 18th at Seven Springs. It's flipped the paradigm this year. We're going practice to research. So hopefully to see a lot of you there. So this week's guest is Mr. Don Weeks, a partner in in-air environmental. They're an occupational and environmental health and safety consultancy based in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. He is now a full-time volunteer. We have to ask him about that. What is a full-time volunteer? He's also been providing environmental and occupational health and safety for over 43 years. It's hard to believe you don't look that old, Don. Uh, Don is a certified industrial hygienist, a certified safety professional. He's also currently serving as a director on the board of the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Most of you know him as a past president of the Indoor Air Quality Association, very active member of the Industrial Hygiene Association and the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. Don, do we have you on the line? Hi there, Joe. How are you doing today? Good day. Welcome, Don. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, Don, what is a, what's a full-time volunteer now? How does that work? They, they got you back in there, huh? Yeah, just when I think I'm out of the game, they pull me back in again. <laughs> okay. Now, know, I wasn't sure. uh, is that a full-time volunteer at in-air or at in-air and all your other volunteer activities? It's both. Uh, I, basically, in-air, uh, the way in which we sold the company – uh, we sold it last August, and um, they asked and, and required that I stay on for uh, for 17 months. So I'll be here until December of 2019 and retire then fully. In the meantime, I'm helping out with uh, with uh, con- the consultancy, making sure there's a good transition, and helping the younger uh, uh, staff members uh, with uh, reviews and and. Uh, discussions about what you know what the numbers mean in terms of air samplings and things like that so from that viewpoint i'm still doing work at, in, in air i'm not getting paid but i'm basically uh, here as, as part of the uh, sales agreement and then of course i have the volunteer efforts as well you know which you've mentioned some of them and we'll talk some more about them as we go along 
Okay. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about the AIHA document that, that brought, you know, you brought it to my attention. It's a fairly new document. It actually just came out in May. I got my copy here, frequently asked questions um, about, let's see, spore trap air sampling for mold direct examination. You know, and before we do that, um, you were in a, at the AI. IAQA conference last year, and unfortunately, I missed this panel. You, you were on a panel discussion about, I think it was mold PRV. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about that? It's a topic we hear a lot about. Yeah, it was an interesting, it was the first time that the IAQA sponsored a, a debate, and uh, there were uh, five of us involved, uh, all which um, you know, relatively uh, well-known individuals, including John Lapeteer, who I see is, uh, is online. With us today, um, also Barry Pinto, uh, Denise. Um, I'm sorry, Derek Denis, and it was it was uh, moderated by Ian Cole. Uh, so it was two topics. One was with regards to uh, post remediation verification, whether or not you should be air you should be taking any type of air samples while the uh, negative air machines are on. So it's an off or on type of um, discussion. The other one was, what do you do when you get an air sample that has one spore of stachybotrys on it? And so I was lucky enough to be uh, chosen to be on both debates and uh, took positions that were probably a little bit contra uh, con contrarian in that regard. I said that uh, on the PRV that, uh, that you should have the uh, still conditions while you're doing the air sampling and you should not have the, H you should not have the ventilation systems on at that point. Um, so that were different positions by, from John and from uh, Derek as well uh, on that. But uh, I think I prevailed in that. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to talk to John and, and, and uh, Derek on that. But one of the things I told him was, I, you know, with the number of years of experience, I actually have more years experience in working in this field than they've been alive. So I figured I'd probably have a little bit of over, over them in terms of this. The other position that uh, Michael Pinto was taking was regards to one spore of stachybotrys. What, what happens when you get that on a sample? And um, Mike, Michael was very uh, adamant that he felt that that was one that you would have to fail if you got one spore of stachy on, on, the, on a sample. I took a, a different view of that. I, I, I particularly wanted to make it clear that, uh, and, and you'll see it in some of the discussion we'll have with the, uh, about the spore trap uh, uh, position document, that um, air sampling is not necessarily the best way to, to figure out whether or not something should pass or not pass. So that was the discussion and I thought it was, it was very well attended and it was, it was very well rated by uh, folks who attended the, uh, the conference. You know, that whole one sport thing has been a, a tough issue for our industry, I think, Don. I mean, you know, people, you know, you, you've got customers out there that expect definitive answers, not, well, it depends. Uh, and, you know, the whole one spore of stachybotrys thing has been a, a, a thorn in the side of remediation companies as well for many years. I mean, I'm wondering, what do you even, when you do, if you do post-remediation verification these days, what do you recommend? Do you do any air, air sampling at all, or is it all visual inspection? Uh, is it uh, olfactory, visual, do you, do you make sure you watch over the process as it goes along or, you know, avoid just coming in at the end of a job? Can you talk to us a little bit about those issues? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the key to any of this uh, type of remediation is preparation, being prepared for what's going to happen and how it, it's going to be done. So I sit down with the, with the um, remediation contractor in, in, you know, before we start the job and go through the steps that we're going to take in order to um, complete the job successfully. And that includes looking, you know, doing monitoring of the, of, of the process, either through visual inspection or some in some cases, depending on the size of the project, we might do particle sampling uh, on the outside of, a, of the containment to see if there's any leaking. Um, then the other part of it is, you know, once you get to the, the post-remediation, post-remediation verification, I, I, I rely heavily on the visual inspection as being the key item. If I can't see it, 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 it it's, it's a good indication that you're going to have a clean environment. Now, many people do use, uh, you know, either air sampling or in some cases people will use um, any type of swab sampling or, or duct tape sampling 
Uh, I don't use that myself personally, but I can see where that might have some advantages. However, all of that is supplemental, as far as I'm concerned, to the visual inspection, a thorough visual inspection, taking a look at everything that you can inside the containment to make sure that there's, there's no remaining mold. If you do that, then the air sampling is, is, should verify that. If it, if it doesn't, then you have to take a second look and see what's going on. But in most cases, uh, probably 95% of the time, uh, you have a, a confirmation by the air sampling that you've done a good job by doing the visual inspection. But that really is the key item, is making sure you do it very thoroughly. You know, one of the things I think a lot of practitioners run into is the um, request, almost the demand for building owners to have some kind of a, a number. You know, you've got to take some samples so we get a number. What do you recommend in those cases? Do you have a, a clearance criteria? If, if one spore is not enough, is, is two. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. This is exactly what we got during the panel discussion. And I said, well, if, you know, if somebody asked, well, is two spores too much? I said, it's, well, it's twice as wrong. Um, <laughs> the reason is that is because the air sampling that you're relying on, as you saw in the document that we're going to talk about, uh, is, is not really accurate in many ways. Uh, so you, you're, because of a variety of different problems that can happen with regards to the sampling methodology and the analytical methodology, and then the interpretation of the results. So relying on air sampling to, to pass a remediation job is not the best way, and it certainly is disadvantage. Uh, it's a big disadvantage for, for, the, for the contractor, because you're in a position where you may have a one-spore or two-spore type situation that has nothing to do with your project. It may be from somewhere else, from the outside or from the adjacent areas. But remember, in many cases, the, the uh, containment is under negative pressure, so it can basically pull in things from elsewhere. So I I'm usually recommend for the contractors that are looking for a number that you look at, at, at ranges. So if it's, you know, if you have uh, a variety of different types of spores, Aspergillus penicillium, you have some uh, you have some stachybotrys or you have some spores. look at the range compared to the outdoors and, and figure out if it's something that potentially might have been there or has occurred that is not necessarily related to the actual remediation that you've been asked to monitor. And also look and see whether or not there's some differences in conditions because, you know, there's going to be a lot of problems, for example, in, in, in the fall when you have a lot of spores all over the place uh, during allergy season. So, did you pull in some of those spores from outdoors? And that, that again, is not, it's not fair to the contractor to basically try to get him to, to do that, uh, you know, to clean something that is, is occurring because of the, uh, the outdoor uh, concentration. So you have to be real careful in the air, air sampling. And I, again, like I said, visual sampling, visual inspection is really my key area of how, how we deal with this type of, of problem. You know, I noticed a uh, couple texts here, and they seem to, uh, you know, like some of the comments you made. Um, one one comment was uh, using particle counters. Have you used much in, uh, particle counters on these projects? I do, yeah. Uh, for the larger projects where we're doing something inside of a building that is occupied, um, we will use a particle counter on the exterior of the uh, containment to determine if there's any, any problems with leakage or any other high level, you know, levels that may be from the um, actual remediation. So we do, we do use particle counters in that sense. We don't generally use them inside the containment um, because again, it, it's, it's just, it, it, can, it can be an issue. But really the key item is if you fail the visual inspection, you have to re-clean. If you pass the visual inspection, you go for a supplemental type of, a, of sampling, but only as, as supplemental to what you saw in the visual inspection. Now, you mentioned earlier in the discussion about the, the debate that um, you were on the side of, of turning off the ventilation system. Now, I want to clarify, is that the mechanical system of the building or the negative pressure that's been created as a part of the containment? It's a negative pressure as, as uh, created by the containment. Okay, and I assume you want that shut down because of some of the issues you brought up in your answer about air sampling. It brings stuff in from other parts of the building that you may be sampling. Yeah, that, that and also keep in mind that, that uh, both the negative uh, pressure uh, apparatus and the air sampling that you're doing are both sucking air. 
So if you have some potential interference from the from what the uh, the ventilation system is 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 doing negative pressure ventilation system, you may have problems with regards to getting a clear understanding of what the air sample really means. So you have to be careful when you're doing that. I like still conditions. I think still conditions are, are the closest to what you're going to have after the, uh, the containment is going to be torn down. Then you have to determine whether or not, you know, that has been in fact well done in that regard. So I look again for visual inspections, but you know when we do, when we do when I go do something of that nature, uh, it's going to be um, you know it's going to have to be during still conditions rather than when the ventilation system is at, is actually operating. Somebody just uh, kind of anticipated my next thought here. It says uh, this is for Bernie actually. Hi, Bernie Fontaine. A minimum of twenty minutes shutdown time needed before conducting the air sampling. Um, I was going to ask you, what's your minimum? You want, you know, quiescent sampling. How long do we wait? And um, how long can you wait? A minimum of X, a uh, maximum of Y. Yeah, I see Jack Stringston. It, it's interesting. These are all my friends. <laughs> on there. Uh, I don't have that many enemies, but if I did, these are all people that I actually know and have worked with in many cases, and they all have different opinions. Uh, Jack had basically said 24 hours. I know Bernie says 20 minutes. Look, you have to play somewhat by ear in terms of what's going on, because quite frankly, if it's a critical path situation, which I've run into, I mean, we've been doing work in federal buildings, you know, uh, starting Friday afternoon and have to be finished by Sunday morning, uh, mm -hmm. you know, or Sunday afternoon at the latest. If you're in that type of situation, you don't have 24 hours, okay? But you do have to have something in terms of allowing quiescent or, 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 or still conditions to evolve. So I do think you have to have something, again, it goes back to that pre-planning that I've talked about. You have to talk to the contractor and work with the contractor and the building owner to figure out what's the most um, efficient and most um, you know, dedicated way in which you can deal with this. And that will vary depending on what type of situation you may be involved with. All right, let's move on to the, the document we, we, you brought to my attention. It's called Frequently Asked Questions About Spore Trap Air Sampling for Mold Direct Examination. Uh, this is an AIHA document, mold analysis document, developed by the AIHA Indoor Environmental Quality Committee, uh, the Biosafety and Environmental Microbiology Committee, and the Sampling and Laboratory Analysis Committee. So I think I got all the proper... Uh, proper committee has got their, their due there, but um, what led to the development of this document, Don? I'm just curious, was there some kind of, uh, you know, incident, event, or just, you know, something that came up in conferences? How did we get to this? Well, two years ago in Seattle, there was a presentation on uh, doing mold sampling, air sampling, uh, and specifically as part of a of doing it as a part of an inspection, initial inspection. And the results that I were hearing and, and others that were in the audience were, were astounding to me. They were, they were getting as much as six or seven million uh, you know, spores, spore counts. And I'm, I was like, that's not possible. It's not physically possible to do that. So um, I, I took that back to the committee, uh, initially to the uh, Indoor Environmental Quality Committee and said, something's wrong here. Why are we getting these results? Well, you know, the people are reporting on these results. Something is not right. Now, the, the gentleman who was presenting was re reporting what the laboratories told him. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we went back to and started talking to the um, AIHA um, laboratory uh, committee and also the MPAT and, and, and committees as well to figure out what's going on. Well, as it turns out, the, the particularly the MPAT um, which is basically dealing with, with you know, credentialing of, of laboratories and, and looking at what, the, what they're doing, looks at strictly at, at a qualitative analysis. They look at what kind of spores you're reporting and determining whether or not you're reporting them correctly or not. But it doesn't do any type of quantitative uh, analysis of whether or not what you're reporting is in fact accurate in terms of quantities. Uh, and that didn't sound right to me. It sounded like that was, you know, that should be part of something that you do. You want to know what the quantities really are. And, sure. and so we had that discussion and we started to think, well, we need to have a committee to take a look at this, this whole matter. Now this was at 
AIHA in Seattle? Yes, I'm sorry. I should have said that to begin with. Yes. No it was the I want to clarify that MLAP is the Environmental Microbiology Laboratory Accreditation Program, a more stringent than MPAT, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through the document, though. Um, okay, well, that's an interesting uh, interesting thought, and it's something that, that I've heard before, that, you know, you get these six or seven million spores per cubic meter cons. How can that happen? We'll talk a little bit more about that as we, as we go through this, but they actually start the document with a question on, well, they, they go over a little bit on the, the, the background of it, but then they go a question on what do the terms viable and non-viable direct examination and culturable sampling mean? I think most of our uh, listeners are familiar with those terms, you know, viable, non-viable, direct exam, and culturable. Let's set the groundwork here, uh, Don. What terminology did AIHA decide we're going to use here is the correct terminology? Well, I think that, that it, it the AIHA looks at it, as you notice in the title, it's direct examination uh, for the uh, for the sport traps, whereas culturable uh, is the is the viable, uh, the ones that are, are you know where you grow mold as part of the analysis of the uh, of the sample. So that they're making that differentiation between what would be considered to be a, a, a direct examination, uh, as you would do with 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 any type of uh, aerosol or any other type or aerosol type of, of sampler. Whereas a culture bowl is, is, is more of a, uh, a sample using plates or in some cases qPCR for an analysis of the, of the sample. So they're differentiating between the two. Okay. And they, there's a statement right out of here saying viable mold sampling is more appropriately called culture based analysis. Okay. That's right. A lot of people have gone, to that terminology over the years, differentiating between the fact that, you know, a bunch of spores land on something and whether or not they grow or, or culturable under those conditions, I guess, is more accurate way to describe it. But, uh, okay, let's move over to the next question in this document, and that is, does a correlation exist between culture-based and direct examination sampling? So, you know, if you if you took a culture-based sample and a direct exam type sample, commonly referred to more as a spore trap, um, is there any correlation that's been found in the research? No, that that that's the interesting thing is that, that there's no consistent correlation, as it states in the document. You know, you you also have to be careful with with anything you do in that in terms of, of if you do both, you're going to have different results in most cases. So you're going to have to look at what does each of those mean before you go on to determine what, what needs to be done. So, yeah, the, the, no one has found a, a good correlation, consistent correlation between um, the, the direct uh, examination and the, uh, the cultural type sampling. You know, Don, we had Ed Light on the show not long ago, and he said his, his mold sampling equipment was in his basement rusting. Um, I'm wondering, have you done any uh, culturable sampling uh, in the last 10 years? Well, I've done some Q, uh, QPCR, which is different, of course, but not, not necessarily through plates. No, I haven't done that recently. I have, I have the same apparatus as Ed. We, he and I could probably swap uh, rust between the two of them because I also <laughs> have them somewhere in a basement somewhere. So no, I have not done that recently, but you know, doing a document like this shows you know, to me that, hey, maybe there's a, a chance for revival for something of that nature, but we'll have to see. Uh, over time, things do change. Uh, I mean, I remember being, on the, uh, being involved with a whole bunch of uh, remediation in the, uh, in the uh, early 2000s where I, I was using the Anderson sampler you know, almost every day. Um, and then the switch happened probably about 2004, 2005. And specifically when I moved up here to Canada where they mostly did sport traps. So I see a change in the, in the, in the, in the market over that period of time. People weren't willing to wait. I mean, you know, for some of the cultural samples, it takes seven to 10 days. People don't have that kind of time. time. So they went to, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, you know, direct examination with with which is not a you know is not terrible in the sense of of having 
uh, results uh, that may or may not be, you know, capable of, of determining whether or not you clear, as long as you understand that the, the key thing is the, is the examination and you're only using it for basically for uh, verification purposes. You're not using it to determine whether or not something passes or fails as far as remediation. And that, I, I can't find my highlight on that, but that was a highlight within this document that, you know, these are, these are only, any of these sampling techniques are only used to supplement your visual inspection and your background information uh, collection, your investigation of the building and previous events at the building. And, and they're, they're pretty clear about that in here. Um, let me just real quick, Cliff. Did you have any follow-ups or any any questions? You yeah, wanted? I, I, I did. Um, you know, it seems to me that in every industry, Don, uh, you know, someone makes a mistake. You get what's called misinformation or or made-up science, and then all of a sudden, it's presented someplace, and then people begin to parrot it, and then uh, it becomes you know it winds up in in, uh, in in professional practice. It winds up in standards and and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times once it's there, uh, you can't get it out. And I think, you know, one of the things is, you know, when we go back to, to Stacky and, you know, evolution of the industry, you know, they couldn't find it for a long time because they didn't know how to grow it. Well, yes, that, that and, is true. And, and so you had to have a specific type of media in order to, to, to grow that type of, of Stacky botrys. And I, I know, Cliff, that you and I are almost the same age. And so you're going to remember the whole Stripping Springs incident in Texas. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that really changed the way in which people looked at things. And, and so that sped along, you know, the whole process of making a change from doing the cultural type sampling to doing the direct examination type sampling because people were really concerned right away. Do I have a mold problem? Do I have a mold problem? They want to know right now. And that's a real problem. You're right. What happened is that then how do we how do we do this? How do we get to get them the results that they want at the same regard, have some scientific basis for what it is that we're going to ask them to do in terms of remediation? You know, I, what I remember from dripping Springs the most was nincompoop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. Do you remember that? You know, uh, when uh, Melinda was, uh, was interviewed, uh, I think on 60 Minutes or whatever, you know, she said that her husband turned into a nincompoop because uh, of the mold and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I think I, I definitely saw that interview. I, I can't, don't have the recall of that particular statement, but I can understand what she was saying. Absolutely, yeah. Joe? Yeah, I want to go, okay, there's a question here. What are the differences and limitations of using direct examination versus culture-based methods. I, I think we all have a good idea on that, but I, there's a couple statements in here I wanted to read to you and then get your thoughts on. In addition to spore traps, sampling for direct examination and analysis cannot be used for an I just want to see what is in the air project. Rather, such sampling can be used only to confirm or refute a hypothesis made by an IEQ professional based on the informed physical examination, such as the fungal spores present in area A is not different from the fungal spores present in area B. And we had uh, Joe Spurgeon on not long ago talking about that kind of uh, comparison between areas as opposed to indoors and outdoors. And, and I just wanted to know if you wanted to add anything to that, Don. Well, I, I haven't had it. I know you've sent it to me, and I appreciate it, uh, Joe. I have to look at uh, Joe Spurgeon's uh, paper. But, yes, I, I do think there is something to be said particularly in a climate where I live, uh, where you can't necessarily sample outdoors for approximately uh, four to five months <laughs> to give it its due. And actually this year it's more like six months mm -hmm. uh, where we have freezing temperatures outside. Uh, so you do have to do on occasions of uh, sampling elsewhere within the same building and make that kind of comparison. I think that's a fair uh, thing to do, uh, you know, to determine whether or not you have different types of, of mold spores in one area versus, you know, other types of more mold spores in another area. You have to be careful with any of these sampling, though. As I said, it's, it's and, and I think that statement that you read goes back again to what we've been talking about, which is do your visual inspection very thoroughly first before you go ahead and do any type of sampling, and it's just going to be a supplement to what, you, what, you know, what you're seeing anyway. 
you know, there's another statement in that same section. It says sampling and analytical error or uncertainty for spore trap samples is generally thought to be between 30% and 200%. Ideal samples with moderate spore loading will be, will have a sampling and analytical error closer to 30%. I wonder if you could expand on that a little for listeners. Well, and we did talk about this actually during the debate as well. I mean, there are so many potential errors that you might have. So you, you, you have to be careful when you interpret these results to, to say, you know, to your client, you know, this may or may not be a true representation of what you have. We, you know, you have to look at the number of samples you took. You have to look at the conditions in which you took the samples. You have to, you, there's so many factors and variables. Plus, there's also error. You know, people don't start it on time. Somebody doesn't record the, the length of time for, correctly. Those are some of the sampling errors. Analytical errors, sometimes people look at a, a score and, and think it's one thing, and actually it's something else. Uh, and then again, what we were talking about before in terms of, of counting, how do you go about doing your counting? On the, uh, and that's where you get the problems with, as I said, with some of the labs reporting as much as six or seven million spores, you know, on spore counts. And it, there's a lot of potential error in the, in the method that's there, even under the best of conditions. And so you still have to take this somewhat discount what you're getting at least 30% discount, some cases as much as 200% discount from what, you, what you're actually uh, seeing in front of you, in front of your nose, which is there's where the mold is. It's right there. All right. I, I, I think that's an important point that, that you bring up. We've got a, you know at least a 30% issue and that could be as much as 200. We have to take that into consideration when we're looking at these results. I've got a break for halftime here, Don, and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with the second half of our interview. We've got Don Weeks back. It's good to have Don back in the saddle here on IAQ Radio Plus. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We're talking right now about frequently asked questions about spore trap air sampling for mold direct examination, the AIHA document. One of the questions I forgot to ask you at the beginning of this on was to get a little credit to the others on the uh, committee. Who else was on this committee? I don't know how big it was, so uh, if, if it's 50 people, we may pass on that. But <laughs> the key people. Well, no, it wasn't 50 people. Um, I, I want to give full credit to the chair, as I've mentioned uh, uh, her. She, she really made sure that we got this done, and that's Sherry Marsham, who is a professor um, – down in uh, Oklahoma, uh, she's, uh, she was just awarded actually in the IEQ Committee uh, Volunteer of the Year Award. So uh, she's very much involved with a variety of different uh, aspects. She's most, most famously, she was involved with, with a, a, a white paper that was in regards to e-cigarettes and uh, vaping back, believe it or not, six or seven years ago before this became a big issue. So I wanna give full credit to, to Sherry 
uh, hope she's listening or will listen to this later. Um, there was also Tony Havix. There were representatives, as, as you mentioned, from the three different committees, Mike Grishon. Uh, we had all of us, uh, we, we actually were on stage at the AIHCE together. Uh, they gave us uh, a project uh, award for uh, for this year, and which you know, which is very nice since we just published it like in May. Wow. Uh, so you know, we we were very proud of how you know getting that committee together. These three uh, committees don't always talk together. Uh, they should more frequently, but they don't. But in this particular case, we sat down, we worked it out, we figured out what we needed to do, and uh, and again. Because of Sherry's uh, leadership, we really managed to get it done in a, in a very relatively short period of time. All right. And, and Dawn, in this document, there was a, a statistic that kind of took me by surprise. I asked you to find out where it came from. There's a question, what considerations should be given to temporal variabilities in airborne mold concentrations when sampling for mold? And within the answer... Uh, they said, research using multiple air samples collected periodically throughout the day in a room has shown the airborne concentration collected in the same room at different times of the day can have a variability of as much as 10,000-fold difference in detected concentrations. That one took me by surprise. I hadn't seen that 10,000, and you did uh, the research for me and came up with where that statement came from. Can you tell listeners a little more about that? Well, it's interesting that the first um, reference I gave you was from who we've mentioned, uh, David Miller, from uh, from a report that he did uh, way back in 1992. That was uh, amazing, yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's like, we, we, we've, you know, as, as Cliff and I were discussing, we've gotten some of our history uh, in terms of this, because basically people back then were already looking at that sport traps and looking at what, what, what you know, what can happen with regards to the, to the measuring uh of that, and I believe there was another reference to a series of uh, of um, articles that Tony Havix brought to the attention of the committee from uh, Chris Spicer, uh, talking about the variety of problems that you can have in this regard through temporal um, issues, and and in the same room getting results that can be as much as a ten thousand fold difference in, in numbers, uh, and that goes back to again what we were talking about why why were we getting these results that were six seven million uh, spores. You know, that to me is, is an indication that you have a problem with, with the way in which they're doing quantification at that laboratory. And you should never have more than a million spores. Uh, and even that is, to me, is a little bit high. But you, you definitely have to, be, you know, take into account that, that laboratories that do that kind of extrapolation to get up to the six or seven million spores are, are probably not doing anything wrong technically, but are definitely putting themselves in a position where the the public gets that kind of information and it really throws them for a loop because they don't understand anything other than the fact that this is a, an extremely high number. Uh, so the practitioners, the IQ practitioners that are between the laboratory and the customer really need them to, to talk to the laboratory about what's going on with this number. Why is it so high? And that, you know, get some idea of exactly what the results should mean. And uh, there's a whole, there's a whole section and a question that talks about that. And we do indicate that if you get any numbers that are higher than a million, uh, you should be talking to your lab director and figuring out exactly what they're doing and why, the, why they, those results are so high. You know, you also have a question here. When collecting and analyzing samples, what considerations should be given to account for that analytical variability in your results? And I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about, you know, what I think you kind of have covered it already, but maybe we could reemphasize it. Yeah, there are a number of factors you have to look into. Um, I mentioned already, you know, just in terms of the, you know, where, where you are climate-wise. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of difference between taking samples in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, and taking them in, the, in New Orleans uh, in terms of the, of the outdoor climates you may have. There is differences in terms of the construction that you may have. There's differences in, in terms of the, uh, the apparatus that you're using to do the sampling. Uh, there's there's interpretation of the data. There's so many different factors that fall into it that it, it becomes less a science and more almost an art. You know, because you're you're kind of going on the seat of your pants as to what it is this actually means, which you know goes back to the reason why we we always emphasize the visual inspection. But it, it is important to recognize that air sampling is going to be done. 
So you have to take into account these factors when you're doing the sampling so that you're not providing your client with something that is uh, less than uh, adequate as far as what is it that's actually taking place there. You know, there's two, uh, another question, does the analytical method to analyze airborne direct examination mold samples exist? And, and you point out in this document that there is a uh, analytical method um, and that there is also, it's strongly recommended that analysis be performed by labs that are accredited to the ISO IBC 1702517 general requirements for the competence of testing and calibration laboratories. And for some reason, I'm not seeing the uh, ASTM. Uh, it's at the, the top of that paragraph. Yeah. I I'm wondering if, um, if you could, do you have an, uh, an idea of how many labs actually are uh, using the ISO 17025? Following I, would think, I would think the folks at ISO probably say not enough. <laughs> but uh, I, I have uh, talked to, to the laboratories that I use, and um, they do follow this. Uh, I think to some extent I'm very lucky to, to have, in many ways, moved to Canada, uh, because in Canada they, they, there is more of an international atmosphere about uh, dealing with uh, ISO and other types of standards. Okay, okay. And so the laboratories here definitely go for that. Now, this is a question, uh, you know, that you, you should be asking your laboratory. You know, if they, if they are doing it, great. If they're not doing it, why not? And, and so we, we want to point out that it's strongly recommended that they at least consider themselves something that they should be doing to improve their quality control. And um, I'm hoping that laboratories in the United States do, do begin to follow that and, and also follow the ASTM standard. Uh, method that uh, that you mentioned, which is D seven three nine one seventeen E. Thank you. Um, comment in the chat. I like uh, we in the industry folks really need to do a similar paper on PCR. Ermi hurts me. I would love to see something like that, Don. Um, we're getting more and more people going to MDs who are recommending. PCR, ERMI, hurts me, and it's, it's causing a lot of confusion for uh, people in the field because they're not exactly sure what they're getting with those types of sample results. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if the committee might want to consider taking that up, but uh, in your spare time, Dawn, you might want to bring that up somewhere. <laughs> well, thank you for taking my time away from me. Uh, it, it hurts me to say this, but basically I don't, I don't have much faith in either of those two methods that go beyond the Q, QPCR. Um, I think that there are a lot of, of people who are, are looking at that type of methodology. EPA itself, which helped to develop ERMI, basically says still to this day that it's still in, you know, in, only to be used in laboratory settings and in research capabilities. It's not to be used in people's homes or in businesses. So I'm going to go along with uh, the EPA on this. Uh, I think it makes sense if they develop it. They would definitely want to have some... Uh, you know, say as to how this particular process is used. And it is a problem. The doctors want to have, again, like we talked about before, we want to have these, these answers. You want to be able to give people answers to their problems. But in most cases with mold, it's not that simple. And so it, it is important that we recognize that these, these uh, other methodologies are still in the, the experimental stage and aren't really ready for prime time yet. And so we, we need to kind of take a step back on that. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Let's, uh, let's finish up this document because there's a couple other things I'd really like to talk to you about, Don. Um, we, we talked about that question, is there an upper limit to spore counting results? So I think we're going to skip over that and just go into the executive summary. And I, I highlighted something in the summary here. This was, therefore, the IEQ professional should interpret with caution any laboratory result that reports airborne mold spore counts greater than 1 million. Okay, that's actually a highlight from a, an earlier conversation here. So uh, they then finish up with what is the difference between MPAT participation and MLAP accreditation. I think most of our 
listeners are pretty familiar with that. But Donna, I mean, you may want to just comment on that briefly. Yeah, I think that 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 the difference mainly is that if with the NPAT, you're a participant. You know, you are being judged yourself as to what's going on in terms of the way in which you look at your your laboratory results. The MLAP is specifically for the laboratory and how they conduct themselves. So there's an actually if, uh, there's a very nice table in the document which shows the differences between the two. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it does a nice job of like kind of punching you in the face. You know, I'm, I'm a kind of graphic guy, punching you in the face. It's like, wow, Empat uh, only does these three things, and MLAP has a list of about 15 things here. Yes. That are checked. And, and so for a laboratory, you need to go with the MLAP. Yeah. For an individual, you can get credit as an MPAT. Those are the main differences, but I do, I do think that it's important that people recognize that if you're, if you're going to have samples analyzed by a laboratory, make sure that they're accredited through MLAP. If you're going to look at an individual's looking at your, your samples, look at their NPAT. Have they done the uh, proficiency test? Uh, you know, do they have, uh, you know, basically the main thing is pay, a, pay their bill. Uh, but, but basically, it is a way in which you can identify taxa and not just four counts. Uh, so you have a you have a way in which you can differentiate between the various labs. Look for the one that has the uh, MLAP uh, accreditation. On any other final thoughts on that document? Um, frequently yeah. asked questions about school. You and I don't, downloaded it this week together. It was totally free. It's That's always good. That. It's always good to have a free document. So you, you can go on the AIHA website and get it downloaded for nothing. It will, it will also be in our blog, and it's on the show announcement for those. I, I noticed one of the folks listening uh, didn't have a copy. And maybe, John, if you could put that link up in the, in the chat, that would help. All right. So, Dawn, let's, let's move away from that document for a moment. I had some other questions for you here. One was um, on ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, which – you know, when I first started doing this work, uh, the Bible was and it's probably yep, still sitting right here. The Red uh, Book. The Bioaerosols Assessment and Control. All right. Yeah. This was 1999, I believe, and you can see it's pretty well marked up, uh, pretty well used over the years. Actually still used because there are certain bioaerosol topics covered in that book that really aren't covered very well in other places. So um, we still do use that. You're on that committee that uh, are on the on board of ACGIH. Uh, what's new in the uh, indoor air quality segment of ACGIH? Well, I, I'm very pleased to announce that at the most recent board meeting, uh, which was held in uh, Minneapolis at the AIHD, <laughs> The, the board of directors of ACJH has authorized uh, to that we're going to revive the uh, bioaerosols committee and have it back up and running. Hopefully, within the next couple of months. One of the first tasks is going to be looking at the uh, the booklet, the TLV, the threshold limit value booklet. There's a section on bioaerosols in there that's unfortunately 15 years old, and we want to update that and get that up and running. So that's our baby steps first, is to get that squared away. Our ultimate goal, though, is to, to uh, look at the bioaerosols book that you're, you're, you have in your hand, or you had, uh, and see if there's a, a, a market for updating that. And I believe there is, but, you know, we want to have the committee make that decision in terms of how this is, you know, how we approach this particular item. Obviously, you know, you, you have a, a, a classic uh, text there, I don't think that the update is going to necessarily look like that. It's going to be a PDF, most likely. Um, so we're in a position where we're going to see if, it, if there's a market for it, and then we're going to proceed uh, through the Bioaerosols Committee to, to, to see what we can do to update it, and hopefully we'll have it uh, on the market uh, in the next uh, couple of years. That would be great, Don. I think there's been, well, obviously, there's been a whole bunch of new information that's come about since 1999 and uh, it would be great to see an updated I, I was I, I'm gonna ask this just in, just for the heck of it but um, I was of the impression that ACGIH had been uh, a little uh, hesitant to revisit the bioaerosols book because as I understand it it caused a bit of uh, 
a bit of, I don't know if it was controversy or a bit of uh, uh, some issues for them when it was first published. Do you remember that? Did, are you familiar with that at all? I am, actually. Uh, but it wasn't when it was first published. It was actually approximately five years later at a conference that I think you and I were at, which was in uh, 2004 in, uh, I think it was in Orlando. It was very well attended. We had a whole bunch of uh, people who were very much involved in it, including the Fire Aerosols Committee that was meeting at that point. The crux of the issue was um, that the individuals from the Bio Aerosols Committee and some individuals on the AIH side were actually meeting together to discuss maybe having a joint publication. Um, and they forgot to inform the board of directors of both organizations that that was what they wanted to do. Well, you can imagine that the board of directors was a little unhappy about that and decided that they would, you know, they would stop that effort. Uh, that caused a uh, mass resignation of the members of the Bioaerosols Committee. Uh, very unfortunate. I think it should have been resolved differently. That's my personal opinion. Uh, but it's taken 15 years for us to get back to where we are now, taking a look at reviving the Bioaerosols Committee again and hoping that we can, uh, we can work, do some good work with, uh, with a new generation of people who will be involved in, the, in this effort. Cliff, anything you wanted to uh, jump in here, add anything? Or no, I'm good, Joe. Oh, I've got a text follow-up, Don. Um, when will the AIHA field guide be available in PDF? Good question. Unfortunately, I'm not the person to answer that question. All right. Uh, I, I would suggest that if the individual who, who's asking that question could contact um, uh, Katie Robert, who's the head of publications at AIHA, uh, she may have an update for you on that. Okay. That's John, by the way. John Lapoteer. Thanks, John. And um, well, let's go to the, uh, what I find, you know, I, I haven't talked to you in a while and we're, we're going back through some old things and some new things. And I find this new thing really interesting to me. Um, and it, it is the, uh, let me make sure I get it right here. The Allied Industrial Partners MOU. Um, we've had some talk about that on the show. Jay Stake, the current IAQA president, is on the show. I think some of that started under John Lapoteer, the previous president's um, reign. Uh, some would call it a reign of terror. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> purple rain. Man, you're going to be in trouble now, Joe. One of those. Uh, I just wanted to get people's attention, see if John was paying attention there. But anyway, um, tell people a little bit about that. I think that's a really interesting group that may actually be able to, I don't know, hopefully move the ball forward on a couple of these topics we've been wrestling with for years. Yeah, and I, I, because of what you've said, I'm going to basically give full credit to John for having done this because he was under his reign that he, he basically started this process. Um, we're now moving at more rapid speed. Uh, it is involving the IAQA. They're kind of the lead on it, but it's also AIHA, EIA, RIA, IICRC, and some other groups as well, NADCA and NAFA, and other groups are, in, are certainly going to be potentially invited as well. Um, and we're looking at getting the language put together for the uh, MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, and have cooperation between the, the various groups. And uh, this Allied Industry Partners, uh, I think, is going to be a, a good effort to, um, to kind of unify the, 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 um, the field so that we can kind of be on the same pages about where, where these things may, may actually be uh, better for, for, uh, for all the people that are, that are using our services, you know, our clients, uh, the building owners. Uh, the meters, all those folks are, you know, can, can look at what we're doing and see that we're coordinating our efforts in that regard. You know, I stepped, I, I lost track for a moment there. Was IICRC on that list? Yes. Yes, they were. And that's important, I think. They're, they're you know, they're a big dog in the restoration industry. So it's, it's good to see them um, participating in that group. And I, I look forward to that group you know, maybe, maybe we'll get a representative from the group uh, on the show once, you know, obviously you're just getting started. Things will, things will start to hopefully amp up a little bit here. Another group that in my experience, Don, has been um, 
slowly moving forward here uh, is the IEQ Global Alliance. Um, that is something I was playing around with maybe four or five years ago, I want to think. Uh, how is that coming along? Tell listeners, first of all, a little bit about what it is, how it got started, and then what the goals are there. Well, it did get started about four or five years ago. It was originally uh, an agreement between five different uh, um, organizations, uh, ASHRAE, IEQA, AIHA, AWMA, and uh, I think REPCA, uh, which is an uh, uh, organization out of Europe, and AIVC, actually, so it's actually six groups. Uh, we signed a document, believe it or not, in Seattle at an ASHRAE meeting uh, about five years ago. And we've working under that MOU for the last five years. We've presented at various conferences. Uh, we've, uh, we've, we've reprinted paperwork. We've done some, uh, some original research. And so what we're finding is that we, we, it's working reasonably well. And so we'd like to expand it and go beyond that to where we have basically in, in the uh, IQGA be incorporated uh, as, a, as a, an entity. Um, Full disclosure, I am the, the president, current president of IQGA, so uh, I've been very intimately involved in this. Uh, we're going to be meeting again in ASHRAE's uh, meeting, uh, the annual meeting or summer meeting in Kansas City, and I'm hoping that we can approve the articles of, of organization, association, uh, so that we can move forward with incorporation. I'm hoping to be able to sign the official documents uh, at the AIVC's 40th anniversary in Ghent, Belgium. We're, we are incorporating in Belgium, and, and um, we're going to be doing that uh, hopefully in September of this year. And, um, and from there, we've, we've now also had new members that have come on. The um, ISHRE is the India version of ASHRE, and they have like 11,000 members. Hmm. Uh, and we have uh, folks from uh, Italy and uh, who have also joined the organization. And we're talking to ACGIH. We're also talking to folks in Brazil. Uh, we're talking to uh, other organizations as well. So we're, we're starting to expand on an international basis. To differentiate that between uh, what we were talking before with the allied industry partners, that's specifically, I think, North America for the most part. This is a worldwide uh, organization, and we, we are getting members, uh, member organizations to get involved in it. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that by, uh, by October we'll, have, we'll be fully incorporated and we'll hit the, the new year uh, up and running. What kind of issues are, are you looking at as far as, you know, issues that you, your group can help shape? Well, one of the key issues is, is basically outdoor pollution coming indoors. Yeah. Um, I, I think your listeners have, have heard this before from me and, or from other speakers. The largest number of, of deaths from indoor air pollution come from particulates, um, mainly with regards to cooking and things like that. But it's 2 million people per year who die from that kind of indoor air quality problems. That's a major issue. Uh, you know, so we're going to see that kind of issue be, you know, some of the things that we would look at on a, on a more than just nationwide basis, but an international basis, because I think it's important enough that we, we look at what, what's going on worldwide and, and be able to, to make some good and, and scientific um, information available to people that are dealing with that issue. So that's one, but I, I see a whole variety of other problems. I mean, you know, without going to great detail, there's certainly issues with regards to indoor air quality related to um, climate change. Whether you, you know, whether you are on one side of the argument or the other, things are happening with floods and tornadoes and, and various other, uh, up here in Canada, the ice uh, on the Arctic is breaking up very quickly. These types of issues are going to be, you know, beyond the nation. It's going to be an international effort to deal with these. And I think that's what this group can do is, is get some real good scientific information, technical information to the folks that are dealing with those types of issues. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Don, we're getting a little close to the end here. Um, real quick, I think you kind of covered this just in that last answer. I don't know whether you did that on purpose, but um, I, I always like to ask people like you, you know, 43 years or more in this business, what are the emerging IAQ related issues that you see that, that, you know, maybe even two to five to 10 years down the road, we'll be paying more attention to than maybe we are now. And that's important. Uh, what I usually relate, and I did it just recently in an AIHA presentation 
is is dealing with with um, the research that's happening out there right now in areas such as phthalates. Uh, there's a lot of information that's available, but it isn't necessarily getting down to the practitioner level. Uh, dealing with ozone, lung dance damage in that regard. Uh, problems with uh, HVAC in developing nations. One of the things that I've seen is that many people are putting in HVAC uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning units uh, in, in, inside of a you know, developing nation uh, app, you know, buildings, and they're not operating right. They, they, they don't operate the way they're supposed to operate. So those types of issues are going to become more prevalent. The, the greatest number of research papers that are being developed for the indoor air uh, uh, series is with regards to uh, HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. So I think indoor air quality practitioners should get themselves uh, as much information as they can on mechanical systems because I think that's what they're going to be asked about probably in the 2020s is how do these operate and what, what effect do they have on indoor air quality. Great point, Don. Great point. Um, also, we had a, a text here uh, saying the biggest issue in the future is misinformation, which I made me think, you know. Um, you, you mentioned all the research. Are you talking about fake news? <laughs> well, I don't know, uh, but maybe fake research, you know. There you um, go. There's more fake research out there than people realize. And um, how do you differentiate between, you know, research that was funded by whomever, um, you know, and, and um, the real stuff, you know, uh, very interesting topic, misinformation. Uh, we may have to do a whole show on that, Mr. Armour, but uh, thank you very much. Anyway, Don, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Any final thoughts, comments, uh, anything we missed? And Cliff, of course, if you had a question, uh, you might want to jump in now. My, my only comment is, uh, I think Don said it uh, when he said particulate. And I think so many times you have people that are having health issues at home. Uh, someone goes in, they do mold sampling. I have a health issue or the client has a health issue. They find some mold. Therefore, they jump to this conclusion, mold's causing the health problem, and they overlook all sorts of other particulate that could be causing that problem. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. That's a very good point, Cliff. I think that's exactly what they're doing is they're overlooking other causes by focusing in on the mold. Yes, mold can be a problem. There's no doubt about it. But there, there's other issues that can happen in people's homes and in, in office buildings and in, in other public areas. So we, we we do need to kind of refocus the industry into looking at those areas as uh, as uh, as time goes on. Uh, for the next group of people, particulates may be the new mold. I hope so. I, uh, I tend to agree. We've had some really good shows on that, you know, with Roxas. Uh, Linda Wigington comes to mind, reducing outdoor contaminants and indoor spaces. If you get a chance, check out that show. Don, before we go, final thoughts, final comment. Well, as always, I want to thank the two of you because I, I don't think there's any place else that people can go and get good information about indoor air quality other than on your, your broadcast right now. And as has already been just said, misinformation and uh, fake news is everywhere. But when I listen to what you guys are doing, it's good stuff and it, it, it's legitimate stuff. And I really appreciate what you guys do. Thank you very much. We, we appreciate your support and coming on again. I, I didn't get a chance. I wanted to go before the show and count how many times you've been on, but uh, I didn't get a chance today. I'm going to say it's over a handful, though. And uh, we appreciate it every time, Don, and hope to have you back here in the not-too-distant future. Hey, thanks. Uh, one other thing, Don. By the way, I, when we scheduled you again, I realized that we owed you a gift, <laughs> and it was sent out earlier this week. So uh, it should be there. So take Thanks, Cliff. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank uh, you. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Mr. Don Weeks, uh, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Of course, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next Friday. Oh, by the way, next Friday we've got uh, Ed Cross and is it Charlie Cassini joining us too, Cliff? Yes, Charlie Cassani, right. Cassani, okay. And then there's someone else too. One other person too, Robbins? Robbins, yeah. Uh, so, and we're going to continue the discussion about the, uh, the new group that's been formed by RIA. I guess it's a, like a, I don't have the title of it right now. Government but, Affairs and Advocacy yeah, Group. Trying to help uh, the restoration 
folks kind of uh, have a voice. You know, the insurance industry has a great voice. They, they have lobbyists. They pay for that. Well, um, RIA has a committee now that's uh, Ed Cross and, and uh, Charlie and they, uh, the rest are going to talk to us about next week, specifically put together to help uh, with that issue, you know, to help kind of uh, with a little bit more, uh, I don't know, I guess we'll call it lobbying for, uh, for the industry uh, because they've got very strong lobbying on the other side from the insurance industry. So looking forward to that next Friday at noon when we have the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.